0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen is a neuropsychologist and author of several programs with Sounds True, including The Enlightened Brain, Meditations for Happiness, and a new program on self-directed brain change. Founder of the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom, And an advisory board member of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, Rick is the author of a new book, Hardwiring Happiness, The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm and Confidence. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Rick and I spoke about how to install positive brain states as lasting traits. We also talked about three different ways of working with unpleasant experiences. Letting be, letting go, and letting in. Finally, we talked about our needs for safety, reward, and emotional connection, and how to respond in situations when any one of these three needs are threatened. Here's part one of of my conversation with Rick Hansen on Self-Directed Brain Change. Rick, my own sense is that the idea of neuroplasticity is now fairly well accepted in the culture as a whole. This idea that our brains can change. But you're now writing and teaching about something that you call positive neuroplasticity. And I think this idea is less well accepted in the culture as a whole. And I wonder to begin our conversation if you can talk some about what positive neuroplasticity is.
1: Well, what I I mean by that, in a way, is a very common sense idea that if we grow in any way, you know, if we learn how to... Uh, be more skillful in our relationships or if we become, let's say, more grateful or kinder or we become more resilient, stronger, we become happier in any way, we're growing, we're changing, and we're learning. And any kind of uh, growth or learning must involve a change in neural structure. Otherwise, what's the basis for that learning or growth? What interests me is how to use what we're now learning about how the brain changes for the better and, frankly, how resistant it is to changing for the better. How how can we use that knowledge in really down-to-earth, practical ways? So that's what I mean by positive neuroplasticity.
0: Now, how difficult it is to make substantive changes that change the way our brains wired. I think that probably most people are familiar with that, this feeling of here I am in the same old rut. So what I want to know is how do we change our brains for the better? What are the key things you've discovered about this?
1: Right. Um, I guess the one thing I've discovered is is I'm not sure I discovered anything. Uh, What I mean by that is that what I've really highlighted, I guess, is how uh, the way in which our nervous system evolved over 600 million years has really practical consequences today, whether you're trying to help yourself learn to be more patient, you know, when you're frazzled uh, at work or with your family, or if you're trying to help some insight or some opening or some new state of being, let's say during meditation or yoga, whatever, you're trying to help that really sink into yourself, Um, you know, the issues around that that are very intimate and very real for people in their experience are actually highly affected by the ways in which the brain has evolved. So what I've tried to do is draw on a century of research, really, in learning, especially emotional learning. How we, learn, how we learn to be happier, and also how we learn to be more skillful in our relationships, you know, emotional intelligence and social intelligence, broadly defined. And what comes out from that um, research is that learning is, first of all, a two-step process. First step, you actually have to activate a useful mental state, okay? In other words, you need to have some kind of useful experience in the first place. The brain is not like an iPod. It's like an old-school cassette recorder. So if we want to record the song, in other words, if we want to change our brain, if we want to get that good feeling inside us or that determination or that insight, if we want to get it inside us, if we want to record it, we have to play it. we got to experience it first. So the first step is you have to activate a useful experience, a useful mental state, is how people describe it, And then the the second step is we have to install that activated mental state into lasting neural structure as a positive neural trait. In other words, it's the familiar language in psychology. We have states which are momentary and passing, and we have traits that are more enduring. The essence of learning to change for the better is to help um, useful states of mind sink in to become installed as lasting neural structure. And the problem is that we're pretty good at having positive experiences uh, and also uh, modern psychology and the spiritual traditions and human potential and just, you know, everyday wisdom um, has helped us be pretty good at activating useful mental states. But there has been very little attention to how to install these states into your brain as lasting neural traits. The result is that most positive mental states feel good in the moment, but they pass through your brain like water through a sieve. They have no lasting value. They don't change you. That's why, you know, we can have an experience that gives us some kind of resolution inside, you know, never speak in anger again or never get that drunk or don't kick the dog, whatever, and then 12 hours later, kaboom, you know, we're back in same old, same old. So, the research on how to install things into your brain says that there are five basic factors, and um there are probably a few others, but these five have a lot of impact. The first is duration. The longer you stay with this useful experience, and by a useful experience, I mean usually just sort of ordinary everyday experiences, like accomplishing you know getting the dishes done or Feeling connected with your friend, or a sense of relaxation and calm, or a sense of determination, or sturdiness, or drive, or strength, whatever it is, you know, an ordinary positive experience. So, the longer it lasts, that's duration, the more it sinks in. Also, second, the more intense it is, the better. There's a famous saying in neuroscience, I know you know it, Tammy, neurons that fire together wire together. So, if you get more neurons firing, Longer and more intensely, you're going to get more wiring. And wiring means enduring benefit for you because now you're weaving this experience into the fabric of your brain and yourself. So, the second one is intensity. The third of five factors, and I'll just do this kind of quickly here, is called multimodality. It's the idea that it's important to feel it. The more that we feel it in the body, the more that the positive experience has an emotional resonance to it. And even if it's appropriate, the more we enact it, You know, the more we kind of move or shift our posture or even our facial expression or tone of voice in the direction of the positive experience, the more memorable it will become, the more we will retain it, the more it will be encoded into neural structure. The fourth factor is novelty. The brain is a big novelty detector. It's always looking for something new. That's why they call it the news, right? And so the more that we can take experiences, especially familiar positive ones, like everyday experiences of gratitude or connection with our dog or a feeling of kind of really enjoying the beauty of the natural environment we're in, you know, these can become kind of same old, same old. The more we can see them as fresh, as it were, through the eyes of a child, you know, the saying: I'm sure, Zen mind, beginner's mind, or don't know mind, you know, the more that they will um, sink into us in terms of becoming neural structure. And then the last factor is personal relevance, or sometimes called salience. Basically, why should I care? Why is this experience relevant to me? Why, does it, why could it matter to me to grow it inside myself? So those are the five basic factors proven in or shown or demonstrated in hundreds if not thousands of studies on various aspects of learning that will help you install this positive experience so that you carry it with you wherever you go and bit by bit fill yourself up with it.
0: Now, you know, Rick, I don't want to introduce too many speed bumps into our conversation, but I'm going to bring one Mm. right now, which is, you said something I thought was very interesting, that our brain functions more like a cassette recorder than an iPod. And here I am talking to you, my favorite neuropsychologist and meditation teacher. And I don't know what you mean by this. My brain is more like a cassette recorder than an iPod. Help me out here.
1: Oh, sure. Well, um, so I've got a smartphone, and it's Got a lot of music on it, and so like a lot of people, to get the music on it, I just sort of sync it up with my computer, and the computer via a cable, and I could do it wirelessly too. Just quick, transfers that music over really fast. Okay, um, that's like an iPod or a smartphone, but you can't just you know stick a cable into your brain and suddenly install the ability to fly a helicopter or do kung fu, you know, like we saw in the movie The Matrix, right? We have to, in the, in the old days, if you wanted to record a song, uh, you had to play it on the radio, and you would turn your recorder on while the song was playing, and it would record it. Or if you've got a VCR or a DVR, the show runs, and while it's running, it's recording. It's making an enduring record. The interesting question here, Tammy, and there are a lot of kind of deep spiritual aspects of this that are pretty interesting, how do we take fleeting, impermanent experiences that are so transient, how do we help them uh, leave some kind of useful, lasting trace behind? That's the real question for me. In a context in which we've got a brain that's really good at turning fleeting negative experiences into lasting negative traces inside our own brain.
0: Okay, so let's just take that. Something positive is happening in my life. I've finished a project, and I feel fabulous, and I'm kicking back, and I'm with a couple of friends, and we're toasting to the success of this project. How would I use these five learning qualities that Mm -hmm. you've identified to really make this positive event last and changed my brain in some way.
1: Yeah, exactly right and and what's neat is I go through this in a lot of ways, you know, in this program for you, you know, the um positive neuroplasticity program. First step, have a positive experience. And it could be a really big one, like the one you're just describing. Sounds sound really great. On the 0 to 10 intensity scale, maybe that's an 8 or even a 10. And life is full. For most people, sadly not for everybody, but most people life is full of ones and twos over the course of the day. You know, their, their cat sits in their lap. Their dog nuzzles up to them to be patted. Um, they're thirsty and they get a drink of water. They have to use the bathroom and they finally make it there, right, have some relief. Uh, they see someone who uh, smiles at them and there's a moment of warmth there. So you're having it in the first place. Or, by the way, instead of noticing it, just noticing it, you could also create it. For example, you could deliberately think of someone that you feel compassion for or loving toward, or you could bring to mind an experience when you were strong. Sometimes, for example, if I'm in a challenging situation, I'll pull up the body memory. I'll think about rock climbing and what it feels like to pull over an overhang, and I'll feel in me again that same sense of determination. Or maybe I'll think about something that I'm grateful for. You know, being able to self-activate, a useful mental state, is really foundational to well-being and coping. Okay, so whether you notice it or you're creating it, in step one, have a positive experience in the first place. It's a little bit like, you know, working with a fire. Step one, you light the fire. You have the positive experience going. Step two, enrich it. Really help those neurons to fire together so they'll wire together. So what that means to me is help the experience last, 10 or 20 seconds straight instead of doing the usual thing which is to feel something pleasant or positive for a few seconds and then move on to the next thing instead of doing that help help it land be nice to yourself you know let it sink in let it stay with you for 10 or 20 or more seconds in a row so that's the duration factor by the way under the general heading of enriching now if you want you can also help it become a little more intense you know you can kind of Make it grow inside you. For example, you can help yourself feel even stronger, in my little example, or maybe even more compassionate toward the other person. So you're increasing the intensity, the second factor. Third factor, as much as you can, try to take the idea of, you know, the thing you're grateful for or the time when you were strong or the fact that someone cares about you and try to help that idea become an emotion and a sensation in your body. All right? Fourth, if you want, keep being aware of fresh or new aspects in the experience, like different body sensations, let's say, associated with feeling strong, or different nuances in the emotion of gratitude. And then fifth, under enriching, the second step, um, try to get a sense of how this is relevant to you. Now, let's be clear, Tammy. When people actually do this, um, it's a mush, it's a bland. We just do it on the fly. It's far from perfect. But I'm just unpacking these elements so you can see that you've got lots of ways to help yourself and help the good stuff stick to you. So this is the second step of enriching.
0: Rick, let's pause for one moment here under the enriching because I really want to make sure that this is operational in people's lives. So you, you mentioned that a lot of things that we experience positive moments in our life. They're just sort of like a one-to-two on the scale. You know, you use yep. the example of going to the bathroom. Great. Are you imagining that I'm actually, or people might actually say, oh, I feel so great. I just went to the bathroom. I feel relieved. So it's a, it's a It is. It's a wonderful moment. Am I going to go through these five steps at that point? Or am, uh,
1: I, am I only going well, through the five so steps? Well, when I say five like, steps, I'm just listing here under one step, enriching, you yeah. know, several ways you can help this experience uh, become bigger in your mind.
0: But what I'm trying to understand, is this the kind of thing that you would recommend people do in all of Multiple the... Multiple times a day. like yep. uh, Like a thousand times a day? Like five times a like day? Like a
1: handful. Like a handful. You know, my rule of thumb is half a dozen times a day, half a minute at a time. That's three minutes a day total.
0: Well, that's very achievable.
1: You bet. I love this method. It feels good. It's quick. It's based in brain science. It's authentic. You're not, it's not pie in the sky. It comes from a tough-minded clarity about the ways life is challenging. We've got to build up the good stuff inside ourselves, you know, and we take charge. Uh, it's also a way to be strong inside your own mind, to take charge of the structure-building processes in your own brain.
0: Now, I want to stay with an example. It doesn't have to be going to the bathroom, but it could be something that we all do all the time, like walking outside a building. You've been in a building all day, and you Mm -hmm. feel fresh air on your face, and the air just feels wonderful for a moment. So this would be an example of a kind of everyday one to two on the 10 scale, where I could actually just take 30 more seconds and just take me through what you might do with the feeling of fresh air on your skin.
1: Yeah, I'll walk you through it. And it's a great example because it's a way to make even a larger point. So I'm walking out of the building and I'm probably kind of stressed, right? I've been running around, multitasking, been interrupted. I've had to shift gears fast from one thing to another. I've had a lot of experiences of things being incomplete. I can't Get them done and i might even have had some interactions with other people that worried me or were let's say exasperating or frustrating does that sound like a typical day at work
0: fair enough i mean yes plus or minus fair but enough. yeah okay.
1: okay not horrible but you know a kind of uh i'm a little stressed i'm experiencing some stress which means frankly then in my body my stress hormones have lifted up a bit and i'm a little revved up all right so finally i get outside and I see, as you put it, fresh air, maybe I see some mountains around me, or I see a tree, or even just have a sense of, whoosh, I'm outside of that situation. So, first of all, I would try to notice that the facts were good. First of all, there's so many good facts in our life, we don't even notice them. So in the first place, I would try to notice the good fact that I'm outside the building, and probably around me, are some things that uh, are appealing, you know whether it 's blue sky or fresh air or other people, something that's pretty beautiful, a tree, what have you okay, I notice the good fact. Second, I try to allow the recognition of the good fact that i 'm outside this building to actually become a good experience. So often uh, we notice good facts. maybe someone pays us a compliment or we get something done, or you know we step outside and we 're no longer dealing with that bad situation we were hassling with except we don't feel anything you know we we notice it we're not psychotic but we don't feel anything so second here i would try to feel it and then third in particular now really zeroed in on your question once i'm having that positive experience of kind of relief and stress relief and calming and you know kind of coming down slowing down coming into my body all well, this is happening within just a few seconds. Now that I'm having it, okay, that's the first step. In the second step, I would try to let it, I would try to let myself receive it for 5 or 10 or 20 seconds rather than rushing onto the parking lot where my car is or shifting gears and starting to worry about, you know, the next undone task I was going to have to get to, you know, or racing on or planning the next event in my day. I would actually take those 10 seconds, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, nine, 10, whatever, ten seconds, twenty seconds maybe, to let it kind of land. And during that period, I would help it last. That's the duration factor of enriching. And, you know, I would probably give myself over to it. Uh, I would, uh, you know, yield to it, as it were. And then in the third step, I would prime my memory systems. The third step is absorb. So the first one is have, the second is enrich. The third is absorb. I would absorb the positive experience by um, letting it sink into me. I would actually literally kind of imagine it going into me, like a warm, soothing balm, or maybe I would just have a just a knowing that it's landing inside me. I'd let my stomach soften, you know, to kind of yield to it. I would give myself over to it a little bit. So hopefully, I would increasingly carry with me one bit more of a sense of kind of relaxed centeredness uh, in the days ahead. So that's what I would do it. You know, it's 10, 20, 30 seconds. Uh, No one needs to know why I have that little half smile on my face, you know, Uh, and then on to the next thing.
0: And do you really believe that brain change could happen if I simply did this six times a day for 30 seconds at a crack?
1: Oh, totally. And there's a lot of research that... Um, cultivation of various kinds, you know, where we cultivate wholesome states of mind actually leads to lasting changes. Interestingly, most of that research blurs together the activation part of it. People are having the positive experience, but it sort of assumes that people are actually installing it in their brain. But still, people who routinely do different kinds of practices, even if they don't help themselves, like I'm trying to do here, with um, a real focus on the installation aspects, you know, really getting it to sink in and turn into neural structure. Even when people don't make that explicit in various studies, they get psychological changes that are enduring, which means there must be neural changes. And over the last five, ten years with, you know, more neuroimaging like with MRIs and so forth, we're beginning to see literal structural changes, um, structural and functional changes in the brains of people who repeatedly do various cultivation practices. Uh, and I can actually say that um, I created a course on taking in the good, I six sessions and at three hours each, and we just finished a, a study on it with collaborators from UC Berkeley and UC Davis. And um, these are preliminary findings, they're not pre-reviewed, you know, disclaimer, disclaimer. That said, we they're very, very substantial results in terms of people taking the course compared to randomized waitlist controls and so forth, a very legitimate study, compared to other people in terms of satisfaction with life, even two months after the course is over. That's a pretty robust finding, including with the you know small sample that we had. And if you're getting those kind of psychological, mental changes, you must always also be getting neural structural changes as well.
0: Now, you used this very interesting word when you were talking about this installation phase, and you said that we could yield to the yeah. positive experience that we're having. I thought that was interesting, yielding to it. Explain what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny for me, Tammy. Uh, you, know, you, you know me quite well, and uh, I, think, I think, you know, I'm probably... Growing up, at least, I was you know, one of the major dorks, and I probably still I'm pretty dorky. And it's interesting that my own journey into this material, into the, in, in a ton of scholarship about um, evolution and neuropsychology and the brains of birds and worms and oxytocin in worms and modern primate brains, da-da-da-da, hey, the end of all that for me, it's really brought me home to a kind of intimacy with our own body. And where we do yield to the experience, it feels that way. You know, I know from a third-person perspective what's happening in our brain when we do this process. But from the first-person perspective, from the inside-out perspective, you know, a third person is outside-in, first person is inside-out. Mm-hmm. From a first-person perspective, it feels like letting yourself receive a gift. You know, it's funny. We know what it's like. Someone gives us a gift. And we push it away. We know what that's like. Or we just kind of poo-poo it and we don't really take it. Or we know what it's like to eat something and not really notice what we're eating. We're kind of unconscious. On the other hand, we know what it's like when someone gives us a gift. Maybe it's a physical gift or they, they give us the gift of, of warmth or lovingness. And we really receive it. We let it come in. We allow ourselves, we're kind to ourselves, we allow ourselves to have it. In the same way, let's say eating something delicious, mmm, you know what I mean? Yum. We allow ourselves to really be there for the experience. And interestingly, this matter of being there for the experience, you know, that's an enjoyable experience, is very hedonistic. Right? It's also eudaimonic, as it were. It gives us a sense of meaning and purpose in life. And it's also hard-headed intelligence because by experiencing in this very soft and kind-to-ourselves way that we're really yielding to the experience and, and receiving it in a very kind of yin or, if I could use the charged word, feminine kind of way. We receive it. We are actually hardwiring it into our own brain.
0: Now, I'm imagining someone who's who's listening who says, you know, okay, is the glass half empty or half full? Well, if I'm hanging out with Rick Hansen, it's clearly going to be half full, and I'm going to appreciate that. But isn't it also half empty? And aren't I just sort of painting myself into some pleasure place with right. all the pleasure ninnies? It's also half empty.
1: I think you're getting at A very important point, and I want to be really clear about it. So first part, I'm not talking about positive thinking or looking on the bright side, because that's just, to me, that's more about activating positive states that are wasted on the brain. They don't make much difference. Second point, I'm not at all talking about not seeing the bad. And when I use words like good or bad, you know, positive, negative, I want to be clear what I mean. I don't mean it moralistically. I mean it pragmatically. Good being that which helps us be happy or helpful to ourselves and often others. And bad or negative is what makes us suffer and harm ourselves and create suffering and harm for others too. Okay. I don't mean we shouldn't see the bad. I think it's incredibly important to see the whole picture, um, to see the impact on the atmosphere of dumping tons every day of carbon into it, um, of recognizing that in America, uh, one of the wealthiest countries in the world, one in five kids nationwide lives below the poverty line. And I think it's important to really see, quote-unquote, the bad. You know, it's like a mosaic. Life's a mosaic with many tiles. But with, you know, some exceptions, most people have a brain that's biased to overlook the good tiles in the, in the mosaic of life or to recognize them briefly in passing and then move on without feeling anything and to continually scan for the negative tiles and then react to them intensely and remember them forever after because that's what helps animals survive under very harsh conditions which was the crucible if you will of our own evolutionary journey toward you know being human today with Stone Age brains in the 21st century So. I'm very, I think it's incredibly important to see the bad, but also to realize that our brain is biased in that direction. Then the other thing to say here is that I think there are three ways to engage the mind. There are three ways to practice with it. In the first way, we just be with it. We don't try to influence it. We observe it. We hold the experience in a big space of awareness. We try to step back from it so we're not so caught up in it and identified with it. We feel the feelings. We experience the experience. Maybe we also investigate. You know, we kind of sense down into the softer, more vulnerable, or younger layers under the top parts. Okay, we're just being with it. That's profound in terms of practice. That's very central to my own contemplative practice, more and more especially. And um, I think it's foundational for everybody. But that said, it's not enough. We must also, in the second way to engage the mind, help the negative decrease over time and in the third way help the positive to grow over time that's the wise effort aspect of things where you reduce the negative and increase the positive all are important you know if the if the mind were like a garden we could witness it in the first way we can pull weeds or we can plant flowers right and sometimes we have to plant flowers we have to cultivate resources or strengths inside us so we can be with the mind you know to just feel the feelings or go into open awareness in meditation for example people are totally not prepared for that Um, there's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous that the brain is a dangerous neighborhood never go in alone so if we haven't resourced ourselves to really bear our own pain or to stay steady when we open to our experience opening to our experience can feel like opening a trap door to hell and so anyway to bottom line it I think that um, bare witnessing or choiceless awareness or just being with the mind has gotten way too overvalued, way too privileged in psychology and psychotherapy in the last 10, 20, 30 years and in non-dual practices and also in some Buddhist practices. I think that that stance of letting things be and simply witnessing Uh, is profound, it's fundamental, it's probably the most important of the three ways to engage the mind. But it's far from the whole of practice, and sometimes people make it the whole of practice when it's really not. So if I talk about the skillful cultivation in Sanskrit, as you know, bhavana, uh, the cultivation of wholesome qualities of mind and heart, which is what we're talking about here, or at least I'm trying to talk. I think we're talking about it. If I talk about that cultivation, it's in this larger context in which I'm not trying to resist the negative because that just creates more negative, and I'm not trying to paper over the negative with the positive because that doesn't help anyone, anyone. But on the other hand, it's a remarkable fact that most of the wholesome qualities of mind and heart that we want Inside ourselves, inside our children, inside our therapy clients, our meditation students, or inner political leaders, the wholesome qualities of mind and heart like determination, love, um, resilience, happiness, positive emotions, gratitude, awe, those positive qualities, those inner strengths, are mostly built from positive experiences. Positive experiences are the pathway into cultivating the good stuff inside ourselves that we want. But the brain has a kind of bottleneck that makes it very inefficient at turning these positive experiences into inner strengths that we want, even though positive experiences are the primary source of those inner strengths. So what my work's about a lot these days is helping people learn how to open that bottleneck uh, based on a very clear-eyed understanding of the hard things in life so they can help grow the inner strengths inside themselves, in part to deal with those hard things.
0: You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs And receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Now, it's very interesting to me that you say that you think that whether it's in psychology or within certain spiritual approaches that there's this bias towards just being with whatever's happening. And I notice that I think I have that bias. And I'm curious to know where you think that bias came from.
1: I think that um, I can't speak for other contemplative traditions, and I'm frankly not sure that that bias is present in, for example, Christian or Hindu or Muslim or Jewish or shamanic um, spiritual traditions. But, uh, you know, in Buddhism, and especially as Buddhism has come to the West, and I think also in some non-dual variations, uh, there's been a belief that any kind of goal-directed effort of any kind, including inside your own mind, is somehow dualistic and egoic and just another kind of craving. And I just think that that is wrong, and it's not the traditional teachings, really, certainly not of the Buddha. Um, You know, being able to simply witness what's there without interfering in any way is, as I've tried to say, profoundly important. But that pure witnessing is not itself, for example, um, um, an ethical view. It's not itself love for others. It's not itself um, the cultivation of happiness or uh, gratitude or inner peace. And to grow these things in the mind, that means growing structures in the brain. And also, simply witnessing often will undo um, the negative. But the structures in the brain that are the basis, neurally, for anger or greed or delusion or heartache, you know, or just everyday worry, um, feelings of inadequacy or feeling hurt, feeling let down or feeling muzzled, you know, around speaking from the heart, um, those neural structures are very resistant to change. They don't just easily change. We need to make effort to get them to change. So um
0: I think you're pointing to something really important because what I, what I notice I think my sort of little bit of a sense of discomfort with this idea of increasing the positive is how I've seen that used in the culture as a personal ego aggrandizement mission. And so I think that yeah. is part of what makes me nervous about it or yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair nervousness. I think that and again, um, you, know, I've, you know, in my writing and so forth, I've, I've really tried to honor that uh, pitfall, right? Because it is possible for, you know, I grew up in the 60s, right? It is possible to uh, get really jazzed about uh, positive thinking and everything's bright and shiny and this is the best of all possible worlds and all the rest of that and they're just doing the best they can and blah blah, blah, blah. So there's some pitfalls there. And I think that uh, for me, if we're trying to cultivate these wholesome qualities inside ourselves, the trick is to be both simultaneously um, kind and benevolent toward ourselves, much as we would be kind and benevolent to another person. You know, we would wish for our friend. Let me just sidebar here for a second, Tammy. We would wish for our friend to have a positive experience, let's say, of feeling loved or feeling loving or feeling um, happy. Um, we would also wish for our friend, let's say, to let that positive experience sink in, so that she's gradually, over time, less anxious, less irritable. You know, she feels more worthy of love, etc. We would wish that for her. But it's so interesting that many people, both in the spiritual side of things or people just, you know, kind of functioning in everyday life, would consider it perfectly appropriate to wish that for their friend but somehow they think it's inappropriate to wish that for themselves. So part one. Part two, as you let yourself have this positive experience, the trick is to simultaneously let go of it. It's to let it land inside yourself while you're not clinging to it. And then uh, you're not falling into the pitfall. Flip the other way, though. I want to say that probably like you, I've known a lot of people who've been practicing bear witnessing for a long time who are still really difficult to live with, <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> or work with, and they're not very happy people, and I don't think they're particularly wise. You know, they've only used one of the major tools in the toolbox, and they've ignored the other ones. So to me, just as, if there, are, just as there are pitfalls in uh, cultivation practices, there are pitfalls in bear witnessing practices.
0: I'm very appreciative of this point you're making. And I think I might just take an extra ten seconds to feel I'm joking with you, nah. but it's true actually, to feel my appreciation. But actually I wanna I wanna ask about this third tool in the toolbox that we haven't talked about, which is now I'm having a negative experience of some kind. Let's say I walk outside the building and instead of feeling a cool beautiful, refreshing breeze, I smell something absolutely terrible. Like Someone has left some toxic product right outside the door that I smell. It's terrible. What do I do in those moments? That's a great
1: question. I'm taking,
0: once again, a kind of innocuous example. We could, of course, have much more difficult and painful examples.
1: Well, if I could, uh, maybe a more everyday one is you're interacting with somebody and they do or say something that um feels unpleasant to you it's sure. irritating or worrying or you feel hurt sure. Right? they maybe you're talking and they start looking away from you or they interrupt you or they say something critical or uh you're sharing your feelings and they suddenly start trying to solve your problem okay so something's happened that's it, it stirs up things inside you so this little model I laid out of the three ways to engage the mind, which you could summarize, you know, if you're observing the garden or you're pulling weeds or planting flowers or really super summary, let be, let go, let in, one, two, three, all right? Your first phase is to just be with it, is to notice that you're upset and to stay with the negative and not quickly jump on to the second or third ways to practice with your mind. Um, often, you know, I'm a very guilty of this, so I'm particularly sensitive to it. Uh, for a long time, especially when I was younger, I would want to get rid of my negative feelings. I would want to cover them over or just get rid of them, but that didn't work. I didn't do the first step honorably. I didn't feel them. I didn't stay with it. I especially didn't sense down to the softer, younger wounds, you know, and hurts that were that were. Turbocharging, what was a pretty, on the zero to ten yuck scale, you know, the dog do outside the, the front door of the office, let's say, or the snappish, irritating, snarky comment someone says to me is really a two or a three, really, but it feels like a seven because it hits that childhood preamp that jacks it up. You know? Okay, if you don't stay with it and you don't experience it fully, it won't be effective to let go or let in. But at some point, It usually feels appropriate. I think of that as the Goldilocks place. You know, not too tall, not too short, not too hot, not too cold. It will feel appropriate to move on. And at that point, let's say someone's irritated me or they've kind of devalued me, they put me down in some way, you know, kind of, eh, that's stupid what you're saying, Rick, or something like that, whatever. You know, I would go to the second step of trying to release it. All right, so I'm trying to calm my body, Focusing on exhaling, I'm not trying to suppress or freeze the negative feeling because that just keeps it. I'm trying to let it go. I'm imagining it leaving my body. Maybe I would vent about it a little bit to a friend, or um, I'm, you know, I'm. A, I, I tend to cry more when I feel heartfelt rather than when I feel um, hurt about something. But maybe there'd be some kind of tearfulness or or something in the body, we let it go. And maybe we turn it over to God, whatever. We we give it over to the universe, perhaps. We let it go. And, you know, if you think about it, probably the majority of methods in psychology are about the second way to engage the mind, letting go. Maybe we have some beliefs. You know, we we start, this person's put us down, and we make it into this broad, catastrophizing, overgeneralizing belief that no one will ever love me. And maybe we challenge that belief under the heading of letting go. Okay. Then at some point, and the some point, by the way, could only be could be less than a minute, if it's a fairly familiar situation. You know, so let's say someone's put me down, it bothers me for a while, I feel it, okay. A few minutes starts to get less. It feels like I can more actively start to release it. I'm releasing it. Maybe this is happening in the back of my mind if you, you know, a dozen seconds here, a couple dozen seconds there over the course of a morning. At some point, then, it feels like there's enough room to authentically let in something, to receive something, to replace what I've released in the third way to engage the mind, the growing flowers part, to actually turn towards something positive. And maybe we'll get into this, certain kinds of experiences are more effective antidotes to our negative experiences than other ones are. So I think of us as having three fundamental needs. One of them is the need to um, connect with others. It's managed by the, the kind of attaching to others system in the brain. So if I've been put down, let's say, or hurt by somebody, that's an attaching to others kind of problem. So it needs an attaching to others kind of solution. So I would bring to mind uh, other people who love me or care about me or other times when I've um, been successful, even if this particular person doesn't like what I do, oh, well, you know, maybe it wasn't so good, but I've done other good things that other people have liked, and that's fine. Or I might just have a sense of my friends who like me, period. Or uh, my cat really wants to sit in my lap when I'm meditating. I do a fair amount of cat Uh, In any case... I would go through those three, state, those three ways to engage the mind. You know, let be, let go, let in. And uh, depending on the intensity of how upset I was or how much it hurt me in the very beginning, um, it might take more or less longer, right? Uh, but that, for me, is a kind of natural sequence. And I think a lot of people will do the first two. You know, they'll, they'll hold it in mindful awareness, uh, they'll kind of unpack it as an experience. They'll do the first way of engaging the mind, you know, witnessing and just being with it. And then they might even go into releasing. Let it go, let it go, let it go. But they often won't deliberately um, help something else to grow inside their mind in the space that's now been cleared by releasing it. But that's a missed opportunity in my book. Plus, um, it's not kind of hard-headed, because as any gardener knows, if you, like, pull weeds and don't plant flowers, the weeds will come back.
0: Well, I'd like to go through, you said there were three different ways that we might be hurt, and I was very interested in that, because when you said this wound related to not feeling connected, and then we could imagine people, we are connected, I was right with you, that seemed to be quite helpful. What are the other two ways we get hurt, and what are the antidotes in those situations?
1: Oh, okay. Um... So I'm going to summarize 600 million years of evolution really fast, right? That's what I like.
0: You know, this is the cliff notes. Uh, Give it to me. I like
1: cutting to the chase. Um, So if we have, if the brain has like three levels to it, sort of like the floors of a house built from the bottom up, we have the brainstem stacked on top of that. We have the subcortex and stacked on top of that we have the cortex. Okay. The brainstem is linked to the reptile stage of evolution, the subcortex, to the mammal stage starting about 200 million years ago. And then the cortex uh, is linked to the primate and especially human stage of evolution starting around 40 or so million years ago, especially the last several million years. Okay. So we have an inner lizard, mouse, and monkey. And we also have three fundamental needs. We have have the needs for safety, right? Rule one in the wild is, Eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Live to see the sunrise and pass on your genes. Our second core need is to get rewards, is satisfaction. So whether that's food or shelter or mating opportunities, we have to pursue rewards. And then the third core need we have is around connection, whether it's a primitive form of connection like worms, you know, having sex with each other, or a more sophisticated forms of connection like humans have in their relationships with each other. So... Three core needs, safety, satisfaction, and connection, loosely linked to the three floors of the house of the brain, reptile, mammal, and human. And you could also say that these needs are managed by three overarching systems that help us avoid harms in terms of our safety needs, that help us approach rewards in terms of our satisfaction needs, and help us attach to others in terms of our connection needs. All right. So we have these three systems: avoiding, approaching and attaching, um, that in a way could be summarized as: pet the lizard, feed the mouse, hug the monkey. OK, so these are our needs. Now, like any framework, the only you know there are a lot of examples that kind of cross boundaries, but uh, if I could give you like, well, I'll go through it. So if we are experiencing being threatened, right? if we're, ang- we, if we're angry or worried Um, Our needs around safety have often been challenged. And what will address our safety needs? Well, if we feel threatened, um, having someone uh, feeling grateful when you feel threatened isn't very helpful. Feeling grateful has to do with getting rewards, approaching rewards. But it's not very well suited to experiences of feeling threatened or anxious. On the other hand, let's suppose that someone has dissed you. You know, they've, they've been rude to you or dismissive, you know, kind of mean to you a little bit. That's your social system that's been activated there. You're attaching to others' needs, okay? Well, if that has happened and you get a new bolt lock for your front door, that's not going to solve your problem. That's a safety experience. That's an, avoiding, that's, a, that's an avoiding harms experience, getting a bolt lock on your front door but that it doesn't address the fact that someone has mistreated you. In effect, if you have scurvy, you need vitamin C. And if you have anemia, you need iron. A little story about myself. Um, I grew up, I was very young, going through school, skipped a grade, and I have a really late birthday. So, and plus I was very shy and nerdy and dorky and all that. I had lots of experiences of um, feeling unwanted, devalued, you know, dismissed, put down, mistreated, whatever. I had a lot of wounds in the attaching to other system. It wasn't horrible compared to what many people experience, but it still had a lot of consequences. Now, I tried to meet that need, that particular hole in my heart, my particular kind of scurvy, in effect. I tried to meet that need by going out in the hills around my home and feeling strong and independent and You know, which is a kind of avoiding harms resource. But that didn't work for me. Also, I tried to be successful in school. I tried to, you know, um, do well and accomplish goals. That's an approaching rewards kind of resource experience. That didn't help me either. But it's only when I deliberately began repeatedly taking in the good of feeling loved and included and liked and seen and understood and appreciated, etc, that's when I finally, get, finally started getting the medicine that my heart really, really needed. So what's useful for people, I think, is to ask themselves, what's your vitamin C? And in other words, what if it were more present in your mind or your heart as, a, as an experience ongoingly or as a resource you could tap? What if it were more present? would make a big difference for you? And you can also ask this question about, you know, therapy clients or students in school, your children, what have you. What, if it were present, would make a big difference? What's your vitamin C? And then the natural question comes, how could I start having more experiences of this? Because you build brain structure out of experiences. You know, you record the song by playing it. So how could I have more experiences of this, Inner resource, in authentic ways. And then people start realizing that actually often they're having opportunities for those kind of experiences already, or with a little bit of effort, they could have more of them. I mean, I started reaching out to other people to have experiences of feeling cared about, and I also started really noticing it, you know, when people actually were nice to me. And again, these were not million-dollar moments. These were ones and twos on the 10-point scale. But daily life, you know, has at least a few of these. Yeah, and then you can really help yourself. If you know what your vitamin C is, then daily life becomes a fantastic opportunity. And when you start having those experiences, don't waste them on your brain. You know, take the extra 10 or 20, 30 seconds to install them to help them sink into you.
0: Now, Rick, I just want to be super explicit here. So if somebody identifies that they have a safety fear or concern that's triggered, maybe they get bad news about finances or something happens to their Something like that. Yeah, their safety issues are up. What would they do as an antidote or a vitamin C in that situation?
1: Yeah. Again, as a framework, I think there are three domains to intervene in. We can intervene out in the world or in the body or in the mind, and they're not mutually exclusive. So if a person realizes that um, they have an unexpected tax bill or perhaps you get some bad news from your job that you might get laid off. And naturally enough, your safety issues are stirred up. Now, I think that there are three domains to intervene in, you know, out in the world, in the body, or in the mind, and they're all important. They're not mutually exclusive. Sometimes people act as if uh, intervening in one means you can't also intervene in the other. So, yeah, intervene out in the world, Do what you can to take care of the financial issue. Also, intervene in your body. You know, keep taking your vitamins. Don't stop exercising. Okay, fine. Check. Now, in the mind. Yeah, this kind of threat is naturally going to stir up anxiety inside us. And there are a number of key experiences. I call them antidote experiences that really address anxiety. For example, physical relaxation. You know, do what you can to, uh, for example, register the experience that happens when you take a long exhalation or three or four or five exhalations. Or notice what happens when you deliberately relax your tongue. Uh, Both exhaling and relaxing the tongue will activate the parasympathetic wing of your nervous system, which is the, quote-unquote, rest and digest wing of the nervous system that's the antidote to the fight-or-flight stress response, sympathetic nervous system. And maybe you've got your own special ways of relaxing, like visualizing you know, a day at the beach or fluffy white clouds. It's hard to be anxious when the body's relaxed. Second, look for opportunities to experience protection. Even if it doesn't address the problem it can reduce your anxiety and your distress about it. So um, take a moment to think about the things in your life that are going to keep supporting you. They will keep um, being on your side even if you do have this financial problem. You know, look around at walls that are sturdy. uh, Recognize that you have resources in your life and um, uh, in terms of other people who support you that can help you feel more protected. Third, a key experience for feeling anxious is to feel stronger. You know, if you think about it, anxiety is based on a sense of a mismatch between threat and resources. Now, one way to deal with that is to reduce the sense of threat by either changing it out there in the world or changing how you perceive it. And another way to deal with it, though, is to increase your sense of being resourced. You know, drawing upon a sense of your own capacities to cope, like pulling up the body memory or remembering a time when you really coped, and whenever you activate these positive experiences, whether it's relaxation or protection or strength, the key point there is to take the is to take the extra 10 or 20 seconds to really install it, to really help it sink in. I don't think any single time you do this will be. Um, you know, will will be an instant cure. And obviously, you've got to do what you can with your financial problem. But building up these kind of um, resources inside yourself will um, help you increasingly be able to deal with a difficult problem, which actually makes a really important point. To me, it's important to be able to cope in situations by cultivating, you know, positive qualities in the mind and then helping them sink in. But the real benefit of that is to gradually weave these resources into yourself so that when difficulties happen, they don't hit you so hard. I mean, for me, Tammy, a metaphor is like the keel of a sailboat. As we gradually weave these resource experiences into the fabric of our brain and ourselves, as we do that, it's like the keel of the sailboat gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And when that happens, you know, As somebody who actually capsized a sailboat that had no keel, I've really become a fan of keels. You know, when you have a strong keel, you can go out where the the fun is. You can go out into the deeper waters. You know, you can explore more in your own life. You don't have to hug the shore and play small and muzzle yourself and dream small dreams. You can actually take bigger chances because you're more resilient, right? You're more able to cope. And if you ever do get banged hard, and we're all going to get banged hard one way or another um, in this life, uh, if not multiple times, when you do get banged hard, you're going to recover a lot more quickly as you've deepened this keel in your water through what we started with in this whole interview, neuroplasticity. You're actually changing your brain to make yourself more resilient and unconditionally happy. Your contentment, your peace, and your love is increasingly... Uh, not contingent upon conditions. It's unconditional because you are increasingly carrying your contentment, peace, and love with you wherever you go.
0: Now, we've talked some, Rick, about what I might do if my sense of being connected to other people is threatened, and we've talked some about my safety needs, but what about this reward-satisfaction drive that I have, as you call it, the mouse in me? Yeah. First of all, give me an example of what might threaten the mouse in me and then yeah. what I could do about it.
1: Let's suppose that um, I'm, you know, I haven't been the I failed at something. Let's say I tried to do something and I failed at it. I couldn't make it happen either because I just screwed up or often I think of it like trying to grow roses in a parking lot. You know, the conditions were just not there. Uh, that you know that book just wasn't going to be popular or you know that person just wasn't going to want to be my girlfriend back in the day uh, that that boss just wasn't going to promote me it just wasn't ever going to happen okay so now i'm have this experience of trying to attain a reward right approach a reward and i'm not succeeding in that so i feel naturally frustrated or disappointed um, what can i do pretty standard situation well again it's not a Complete list, you know, but several that really stand out for me as key resource experiences, key antidote experiences for issues in the approaching reward system um, are first gratitude, thinking of the things that are good in your life. And then in particular, doing what people don't usually do when they do gratitude practice, which is usually pretty conceptual for most people. It's to actually let themselves feel grateful. To stay with it emotionally in a very heartfelt kind of way, 10, 20 seconds straight. Second, overlapping gratitude are experiences of gladness. Things that make you feel happy that are not really about receiving a gift, that's the essence of gratitude, a kind of thankfulness. But more generally, uh, if you just, you're, gl- you're glad about it. Um, you know, you're the, just thinking about it makes you feel happy. Like I think about places in the mountains and Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite National Park. If I'm getting drilled at the dentist, I go out to Tuolumne Meadows. And times I've had hiking and rock climbing and with friends there. And, you know, even though the drill's going, uh, uh, I'm in a better place. Um, So thinking about things that you're glad about. And then, again, letting it register as an experience. Uh, Another one is thinking about other goals you've accomplished. Because in this example we're using, you've been thwarted in attaining some goal. You haven't succeeded at it. So how about the other stuff you've succeeded at, large and small? You know, literally the tricky emails you got out the door or the children you've raised or the major milestones you've put behind you, like surviving middle school or junior high school, right? You're never going to have to go there again. Um, uh, those are very important kinds of goals. Uh, Also think about situations you've endured and gotten through successfully. It may have been uncomfortable or painful, but you're still here today. So those three are pretty classic, powerful, quote unquote, vitamin C's for issues in the approaching reward systems. Um, Gratitude, gladness, and a sense of goal accomplishment. I'd say one more, actually, if I could. Physical pleasure. From a biological standpoint, physical pleasure is a fantastic way to take you out of the red zone, into the green zone. You know, Mother Nature doesn't want us to spend a lot of time in the red zone because it's bad for us, but unfortunately modern life drags us into the red zone of mild to moderate chronic stress a lot. One of the fastest ways to get out of the red zone, like I said, physical pleasure. Um, Looking at something beautiful, listening to something pretty, uh, you know, eating something sweet. You know, try to be appropriate in your pleasures and so you don't pay a price later. But that's another good way to experience rewards. Um, and then when you are having that pleasure, really enjoy it. You know, taste that chocolate truffle for 10 or 20 seconds straight in your mouth before moving on to the next thing.
0: Now, Rick, I have to be honest. There's a lot I'd like to talk with you about and I do feel grateful and glad for the time that we've had, but I feel a bit like the only way the reward needs that I have will be satisfied is if we can have a part two for our conversation. Uh,
1: It would be an honor, as you know. It's great to talk with you.
0: So we'll consider this part one of our dialogue on self-directed brain change. This is a new program that Rick Hansen has created with Sounds True on how to rewire your neural pathways for happiness and resilience. Rick has also created with Sounds True a six-session audio course and online course on the enlightened brain, the neuroscience of awakening. And he's also created a series of guided meditation programs, including a program on meditations for happiness, Rick is the author of a new book called Hardwiring Happiness The New Brain Science of Contentment, Calm and Confidence and it really is a pleasure and an honor Rick to get to be able to publish your audio work through Sounds True. Thank you so much for being with us on Insights at the Edge for part one of Self-Directed Brain Change with Rick Hansen SoundsTrue.com, many voices one journey. Thanks for listening